Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus, sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. We have a lot of news today, including reporting on Eric Prince. Guo Wangwei, and information on the Mueller obstruction of justice incidents. Later, I'll be speaking with Pete Strzok about the handling of classified documents in light of the flurry of reporting on the defeated former guy stealing, ripping up, eating, and flushing documents. And we are on the precipice of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, so we're keeping an eye on that. And of course, we will have the Fantasy Indictment League. But before we get there, let's jump in with just the facts. First up, from Mazzetti and Goldman at the Times, during the summer of 2018, as Richard Seddon, a former British spy, was trying to launch a new venture to use undercover agents to infiltrate progressive groups, Democratic campaigns, and other opponents of Trump, he turned for help to a longtime friend and former colleague, Eric Prince, the private military contractor, Blackwater guy. We know him. He was the Seychelles dude, right? Now, Prince took on the role of celebrity pitch man, according to interviews and documents, raising money for Seddon's spying operation, which was aimed at gathering dirt that could discredit politicians and activists in several states. After Prince and Seddon met in August 2018 with Susan Gore, a Wyoming heiress to the Gore-Tex fortune, Miss Gore became part of the project's main benefactor. Now, Mr. Prince's role in the effort, which has not been previously disclosed, sheds further light on how the group of ultra-conservative Republicans employed spycraft to manipulate the American political landscape. Eric Prince, former CIA contractor who's best known as the founder of the private military firm Blackwater, and of course, we know his sister, Betsy DeVos, was Trump's education secretary. He has drawn scrutiny over the years for Blackwater's record of violence around the world and his subsequent ventures of training and arming foreign forces. And we can't forget to keep in the back of our minds that Trump pardoned some of these Blackwater guys for a massacre that happened um, where women and children were slaughtered. Now, Prince's willingness to support Seddon's operation is fresh evidence of his engagement in political espionage projects. Now, uh, Seddon's recruitment of Prince to help him secure funding is just one of the new details about Mr. Seddon's operation revealed in documents obtained by the New York Times and interviews with people familiar with his plans. 
They provide additional insight to the ambition of the operation to use undercover operatives to target Republicans seen as insufficiently conservative, as well as to, as one document describes it, research, penetrate, and infiltrate the radical left networks. So, remember Trump, they're spying on me, they're spying on my campaign. Yeah, accuse others of that which you are guilty. The Times previously reported in 2016 and 2017, Prince recruited Seddon to join a conservative group called Project Veritas to teach espionage skills to its operatives and manage its undercover operations. Prince also allowed Project Veritas to use his family's Wyoming ranch for training. Seddon launched his privately funded spying effort after leaving Project Veritas in 2018. Now, it's unclear, according to the Times, how many potential donors Prince might have approached for money for Seddon's venture besides Ms. Gore. Separately, Ms. Gore unsuccessfully tried to raise money for the project from Foster Fries, a billionaire Wyoming businessman, during a January 2019 meeting. That's according to three people. During the 2018 meeting with Ms. Gore, according to one person familiar with it, Mr. Prince and Mr. Seddon said the goal of the private spying operation was to gather dirt both on Democrats and rhinos, Republicans in name only, and the plan was to begin in Wyoming and expand operations from there. Over two years, Seddon's undercover operatives, the spies, also developed networks in Colorado and Arizona and made thousands of dollars in campaign donations posing as Democrats, both to the Democratic National Committee and individual campaigns, Funneling money surreptitiously to campaigns through other donors, known as strawman donations, would violate federal campaign finance laws. Huh. Strawman, strawman donations. Now, Mr. Prince is separately under investigation by the Justice Department on unrelated matters, and that's according to people familiar with the case. Repeat, Prince is separately under investigation by the DOJ, and the scope of that investigation is unclear. Prince declined to comment. Seddon and Gore also did not respond to messages. Now, these documents give new details about efforts to manipulate the politics of Wyoming. While the state is currently solidly Republican, very Republican, Seddon and Ms. Gore believed it was in danger of turning to turning blue, like Colorado has. One target in particular was Governor Mark Gordon, who was viewed as a rhino in some Wyoming conservative circles. After Gordon won a close Republican primary battle against Fries, the billionaire, in August 2018, Fries blamed his loss on Democrats switching parties on Election Day to vote for Gordon. So if he's accusing Democrats of doing that, then that's what the Republicans are doing. Just remember that. Now, according to the documents, Seddon's operatives also aimed to dig up information on Steve Harshman, the Republican Speaker of the House in Wyoming at the time, who was also seen by some conservatives as not sufficiently supportive of Trump. One February 2019 report said that new undercover will be joining the team, quote unquote, and tasked with targeting Harshman. Months later, in June 2019, a report said, we're expecting a big haul, including new lines of intelligence on the Republican side of the House. The documents also showed that beyond Ms. Gore, other prominent Republicans in Wyoming were involved in Mr. Seddon's spying operation. One of the documents indicates that Marty Halverson, former Wyoming state lawmaker, provided a list of people for the operatives to target. The list included John Cox, then director of the Wyoming Department of Workforce Services, and Scott Talbot, then director of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. They were going after the Game and Fish Department. The document is dated December 18th and said that Talbot was another one of the names of corrupt individuals. When reached by phone, Halverson said, frankly, I have nothing to say on the subject, and then she hung up. Seddon, who used other former Project Veritas employees to help with the Wyoming operation, and those employees include James Arthurton, a British operative, James Arthurton, uh, codenamed Kim Chi, who was involved in the Project Veritas plan, targeting an editor 
for the New York Times of London in 2017. Now, Prince has previously been involved in trying to find dirt on Democratic politicians. As we know, in 2016, Republican operatives believe they had obtained deleted Hillary emails from the dark web. An episode investigated by Bob Mueller and uh, the special counsel's report said Prince provided funding to hire a tech advisor to ascertain the authenticity of the emails. According to Prince, the tech advisor determined the emails were not authentic. And later that year, Prince turned to Mr. Seddon to help train the Project Veritas operatives. That's Prince, training Project Veritas, Veritas operatives. The two men had known each other since Prince's days running Blackwater and shared an affinity for guns in the American West. Seddon owns a cabin that he keeps stocked with guns, food, and other supplies as preparation for a cataclysmic event in the United States. And speaking of Project Veritas, a New York appeals court has decided an order preventing the Times from publishing documents related to Project Veritas would not be enforced before a formal appeal for the case was heard. The decision, which was made available to the public on Thursday, means that the Times will be allowed to publish parts of the documents and will not need to turn over or destroy copies of the documents in the newspaper's possession. An appeal in December determined that the Times would not need to turn over or destroy documents, but they were still not permitted to publish them. However, the newspaper said at the time it had not immediately sought to get that part of the order lifted and said it instead asked for an expedited hearing. Project Veritas sued the Times for defamation following a September 2020 article about alleged voter fraud. Project Veritas, which is led by James O'Keefe, attempts to expose what it considers to be liberal media bias through undercover tactics. These are the fuckers training in Wyoming as spies with Eric Prince. But Democrats and liberal media bias through undercover tactics, whatever. However, some critics say the group's work is misleading and its videos are deceptively edited. No. And in Steve Bannon land, the financier, famed for bankrolling some of Bannon's best-known ventures, as well as the far-right strategist jet-setting lifestyle, is in deep shit, steering a $28 million yacht, the same boat, by the way, where the post office cops arrested Bannon in 2020. A New York judge slapped Guo Wenwei, who also uses the aliases Kwok Ho Wan and Miles Guo, with a $134 million contempt of court fine on Wednesday for violating multiple restraining orders, barring him from selling or relocating the boat to any other property he controls. The high price tag results from nearly a year of the fugitive Chinese national defying the court's order that he return the craft to a U.S. port, an order that carried a daily forfeiture of half a million dollars. He racked up $134 million in contempt fines for that. Court documents filed in late January show the 151-foot-long pleasure vessel blithely plying the Western Mediterranean. I love Daily Beast's writing. Now, Guo Wangui, who has only until Monday to come up with the funds, uh, seems like he's in a lot of trouble. His attorneys at Barker Hostetler, a firm with close ties to the RNC, declined to comment. However, in an appeal of the decision filed late Thursday, Guo's lawyers lambasted the charges levied as disproportionate, excessive, unauthorized by law, and abuse of, of discretion and violation of the defendant's appellant's constitutional rights. Whatever. You knew you were being charged 500 grand a day before to bring your boat back to port, you piece of shit. The punishing penalties result from a case unrelated to Bannon's maritime arrest last year, uh, a year and a half ago, allegedly looting a nonprofit, a charge for which he never faced prosecution thanks to a last-minute pardon from Trump. What they fail to mention here is that the Manhattan District Attorney is investigating that. You can't be pardoned for state crimes. Rather, these fines are connected to a separate fight over Guo's enigmatic yet ostentatious wealth. Nearly five years ago, an affiliate of the Hong Kong-based investment firm Pacific Alliance Group brought suit against Guo, 
alleging his companies had failed to repay tens of millions of dollars in loans made in 2008 and 2009 or deliver unpromised property transactions. Oh, oh, real estate fraud. Weird. The opulent boat has emerged as a key asset in that fight over the allegedly unpaid tab. So it's like asset forfeiture, sort of. Guo, who was a Shandong-born construction magnate, absconded from the Chinese mainland in 2014, fleeing charges. He was running from the government for corruption and money laundering um, and rape, by the way, all of which he's denied. And since 2017, he has lived in luxury, setting up residence in a $68 million Central Park penthouse and underwriting numerous right-wing projects from nonprofits with Bannon to dodgy media operations to bogus COVID-19 studies to would-be Twitter competitor Getter. And all the while, he has sought refugee status and attacked figures in both the communist Chinese regime and the dissident diaspora online. The yacht imbroglio is hardly the first time Guo's activities have run afoul of U.S. authorities. In September 2021, his companies agreed to pay $500 million in Security and Exchange Commission fines for running a cryptocurrency scheme in violation of federal regulations. Cryptocurrency, real estate fraud, money laundering? Hmm, surely not, no. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that every week I tweet at the U.S. Attorney in D.C. to please consider Volume 2 of the Mueller report and either charge Donald with obstruction or please explain your declination to do so. I personally believe these are chargeable offenses based on four of the overt acts meeting all three elements of criminal obstruction, but I've also been trying to explain that the statutes of limitations and the ability of DOJ to bring these charges is unclear at best. Now, my call is for it to be considered. I'm not demanding an indictment. I'm demanding consideration. And again, if they don't bring charges, I would like for them to explain why not. They do not have to by policy. Marcy Wheeler has written a post on EmptyWheel.net on, quote, unrealistic expectations for Mueller report obstruction charges that I encourage everyone to read because it's important that we temper our expectations for what Maine Justice or the D.C. U.S. Attorney are even able or capable of doing. Marcy says, quote, first, the belief that Garland could have come into office 11 months ago or rolled out obstruction charges misunderstands the Mueller report. Many... Uh, if not most people, believe the report includes the entirety of what Mueller found, describes declination decisions on every crime considered, and also includes a volume entirely dedicated to Trump's criminal obstruction, a charging decision for which Mueller could not reach because of the OLC memo prohibiting it. And she says none of that is true. Marcy points out many of the threads Mueller was investigating were handed off to be continued and still under investigation, including Roger Stone stuff and the millions of dollars coming uh, to Trump from Egypt. If you remember that, that secret team five we didn't know about. Or four. I can't remember. Four. And there are other things that the Mueller report doesn't address, including pardon discussions with Assange, etc. And therefore, Marcy concludes that volume two doesn't address the totality of Trump's criminal exposure because of all these ongoing Appendix D uh, handed off things. So... That comes into play with statutes of limitations, right? She goes on to say we should look at volume two as a referral for Congress to impeach and not for DOJ to indict. Uh, she also points out now, I do disagree with that a little bit, but I understand the point here. And the reason I say that is because when when Ken Buck asked Mueller in his July 2019 deposition testimony before Congress, can you indict a president once he leaves office? Yes. Although that could be separate. He might not have been referring to these specifically, although Ken Buck did say obstruction. Now, she also points out 
The damage Bill Barr did to the obstruction charges could make them impossible to prosecute. That effort started with Barr's declination to prosecute obstruction. And further, that was laid out. Um, what was laid out in volume two did not amount to obstruction. He said that. Right or wrong, he brought that hammer down. Whether he was corrupt or not, that's what his decision was. And we saw that when the DOJ under Garland released the first half of the March 2019 Bill Barr memo uh, outlining the alleged deliberative process, we saw that he and O'Callaghan and Engel uh, made a declination. They said, quote, for these reasons stated below, we conclude the evidence described in volume two of the report is not in our judgment sufficient to support a conclusion based uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that the president violated the obstruction of justice statutes. In addition, we believe certain conduct, uh, we believe that certain of the conduct examined by special counsel could not, as a matter of law, support an obstruction charge under the circumstances. Accordingly, were there no constitutional barrier, we would recommend under the principles of federal prosecution that you decline to commence such a prosecution. So they, they, they said, they decided and wrote in a memo, deliberately process, process privilege thing, you know, the reason that half that memo was held back by the DOJ, by Garland, they said, even if there weren't any constitutional barriers or OLC memo, we still don't think this is obstruction of justice. The end. And to overturn that, is, which is, a, by the way, an incredibly corrupt conclusion, to overturn that, DOJ would have to disavow the decision made by the department and prove that the process was corrupt, which would probably require some sort of nonpartisan, like an inspector general analysis, not just their own. Anything short of that would render an obstruction prosecution vulnerable to strong appeal uh, on or a pretrial motion to dismiss by Trump, who could simply cite this memo. She goes on to cite several other ways in which Barr made it near impossible to bring obstruction charges, and I encourage you to read her post and follow her on social media for this kind of information. Empty wheel. Additional reasons to ignore the statutes of limitations assertions being made on social media is that many of these crimes of obstruction have continued. And they're currently being investigated by the Department of Justice, like Stone, Sidney Powell, Rudy, Bannon. And as we all know, the statute of limitations clock doesn't start ticking until you stop criming. With all that in mind, best to ignore the statute of limitations, see what DOJ comes up with. And that's why I'm still going to continue to ask for consideration of the charges. And I'm going to continue to push for declinations. I want to know why should they decide not to prosecute. And in light of recent news regarding the mishandling of potentially classified or even top secret documents by the former guy, I'd like to welcome the author of Compromised, who is appearing now in a long-form interview with MSNBC's Nicole Wallace on Peacock, Pete Strzok. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to see you, my friend. Um, first person I wanted to reach out to when there were documents being flushed down the toilet and eaten, and we've known this since 2018, that he tears stuff up and eats notes and things like that. Uh, but now with the National Archives talking to Department of Justice and saying that the FBI hasn't looked at these boxes of documents they recovered from Mar-a-Lago yet, or at least that's the alleged reporting, I wanted to ask you specifically to tell us a little bit about the national security implications of taking home classified documents, especially in light of the Honolulu Oahu woman who who was just, um, uh, I think she was already arrested and indicted and pled guilty or, or is going to jail or something. Something's going on with it. That was an interesting announcement today, the timing. Uh, so so tell, tell us a little bit about the importance of classified documents. 
Yeah, that's a, it's a great question because I think a lot of the reporting is not that it's missing the mark, but I think they're highlighting or focusing on the wrong things. People are looking, saying, "Well, these are presidential records," and you know whether or not this is behavior that you know Mike and Cohen said that he always had about ripping things up. I, yes, the presidential records. Yes, they should be maintained for the purpose of good government. But at the end of the day, there is no enforcement mechanism really for the for the Presidential Records Act that came up during Clinton during the investigation of her use of um, a private server for emails. And the bureau doesn't. We've, the bureau has never investigated the Presidential Records Act. They would not do it. And so, a lot of people focusing on that and saying, "Oh, this would be problematic if there were an investigation to bring charges." But I think that misses um, two big points. One is how radically the landscape changed when it sounds like TSSCI material was found, and by that I mean top secret, uh, sensitive compartment and information. There are clear classified information comes in three flavors by law. By executive order. There's confidential, there's secret, and there's top secret. And what differentiates them is the reasonable damage they might be expected to cause to national security. Confidential is would cause damage, secret is defined as serious damage, and top secret is defined as exceptionally grave damage. And what that those terms mean kind of get into a, a term of art rather than a specific definition. But at the end of the day, what really so top secret's the most sensitive of that, and that's usually reserved for when I say the, the term is sources and methods and what that means for folks who are outside of the intel community, things that the government does to clandestinely collect information. So it might be a person they've recruited in Moscow. It might be some super high-speed sensor on a satellite that NRO is running and placed on a geosynchronous orbit. It could be a cable under the ocean somewhere that NSA has tapped into with the help of DOD. It could be information that we're getting from a foreign ally who's doing something else. So usually when you get to the top of that chain, it is the type of information that if you're seeing it as an adversary, it would allow you potentially to quickly say, oh, okay, the U.S. has this information and there's only one place they could have gotten it and I'm going to go arrest and kill that human who gave it to them. I'm going to go lay a new undersea cable that they can't tap. I'm going to shield from this you know, collection device that's overhead, but you want to protect those things. And the higher the classification, a couple of things, those, those sources can be more delicate and more open to being um, defeated and or they can be giving you extraordinary information. And within that, so that's the top secret realm, and you can do things to compartment it even further. So for really, really sensitive stuff, you get into the realm of what's called SCI or sensitive compartment information. And that's of this body of TS information, which is already really sensitive. If there's really, really super sensitive stuff, it'll get put into what are called compartments and they get little code names. Um, Typically, the code names may or may not be themselves classified. Usually, they only become classified if you associate it with what it is. So, there is a human source in Moscow that we have a compartment called, you know, Byzantine Arrow. And if you say Byzant TS Byzantine Arrow or TS slash BA, that doesn't really mean anything. That's not classified. But if you associate Byzantine Arrow with the fact that that is a human that the CIA has recruited that works in SVR headquarters, then that suddenly all becomes classified. But the reason I get into this kind of long-winded, sidetracked, two-minute now answer to your very simple question is, from the media reporting, there's at least some information, I think it came out of the Washington Post, that the material Trump had was not only top secret, but that it was also not just highly sensitive, but restricted in a way that might only be targeted towards the president. And so within this realm, SCI sounds really high speed and really 
not many people must know, but the reality is thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the US government have TSSCI clearances. But when it comes to things, for instance, that go into the president's daily brief, typically the level and quality of information that goes in there is even more sensitive. So as the Washington Post described it, not only is it top secret information, but based on the sort of non-technical way they described it, it nevertheless made me think, A, it sounds sure sounds like it's SCI. And there's a good chance that not only is it SCI, but it's SCI of the sort of quality and flavor that you'd get in something like the PDB, not just something that's sort of being blasted across the Intel community. Now, I think that answers half the question. The reason that's important is that isn't a question of whether or not something is a presidential record. Maybe it is, but what that also is now is potentially a trigger to a number of criminal statutes because you might have, there are a lot of laws that govern the handling and mishandling of classified information that are federal felonies that are the sort of thing that the FBI investigates day in, day out. And then the other component to that, and this is, I hope everybody listening to your podcast who are getting ready to go on the Sunday talk shows because you have an auspicious audience understands as they go to talk about this, assuming Russia hasn't invaded Ukraine, that separate and distinct from whether or not there's a criminal investigation, there is a spill of classified information. There is a loss of control of highly classified top secret information that somehow got down to Mar-a-Lago. Now, why is that important? From a counterintelligence perspective, another thing that the FBI does every single day is understand that a place like Mar-a-Lago, much like Chappaqua, much like Kennebunkport, Maine, is a prime target for foreign intelligence services. The Russians, the Chinese want to get access to not only somebody who is currently the president, but who is a previous president because they maintain a lot of very valuable and important information. So I think it was, you know, you mentioned somebody just coming on the from, from Hawaii and a couple of years back, there was, I think, a Chinese national who was arrested trying to get on to the Trump compound. It is absolutely something that day in, day out, at a minimum, the Russians and Chinese are trying to get access to President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And in doing that, one would expect that they would do things like try and recruit cleaning staff, maintenance staff, get people who are guests or members. And so the question becomes not only, okay, how did this material get introduced to Mar-a-Lago and what was the state of mind of the person who did it? It's much bigger than that. There's a whole, there's a just separate and distinct from any law being broken. There is a huge counterintelligence question, which more is more than sufficient to predicate a case to go down there and say, where was this information? Who had access to it? What is, you know, are there badge access records into that room? Or is there CCTV coverage to that room? Who are all these people and what are their backgrounds? Is it somebody who just immigrated from Cuba? Is it somebody who just immigrated from Taiwan or Hong Kong? Is it, you know, what is the nature of the background of the people who might have had access? Because what you want to know at the end of the day is separate and distinct from Trump or whoever his personal staff were who had it, is there somebody else who might have gotten access to it who would be placing that classified that highly classified information placing those sources and methods in jeopardy so I, I i get very frustrated one that i don't see reporting really thinking about that and two in the context of to the extent there's any reluctance anymore in doj or the fbi to investigate i don't see how that is reasonably possible anymore we don't know right and the only way you know is to go out and investigate and that's why you open a case. And I just don't, if a case has not yet been opened, I, I think it's untenable that that would continue. 
Yeah, agreed, especially in the counterintelligence realm. Uh, and, and back in the criminal realm, which is you know where most of the media is, is focused right now, uh, we know the president can declassify pretty much whatever he wants. Um, and I know there's a process for that. I, I've dealt with classified top secret documents. I've dealt with SCI stuff. And you have to go through a process to get it stamped unclassified or declassified. And uh, and we haven't really, we don't know if that process had been gone through with anything that was taken to Mar-a-Lago. But could the president have just said into the air as he packed them up, these are declassified and taken them with him and, and then be free and clear? I think people are a little bit confused about that. And would that have an impact on what you're talking about, a counterintelligence investigation and who, who may have or may not have seen those documents, because we don't generally get the results of counterintelligence investigations. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering how that sort of uh, overall power that a president has to declassify documents impacts either of those. It, it certainly complicates it. I mean, yes, the president, while he is the president, has the broad ability to declassify information. As it goes to Trump, that gets particularly tricky because he, in a couple instances at least, tweeted that he was going to declassify things. And then when things actually went into court, I think it was Mark Meadows, but it might have been somebody else, they actually filed via DOJ statement saying, hey, look, a tweet doesn't declassify. Just because Trump said something in the spur of the moment on Twitter, that doesn't serve as a mechanism to declassify something that it has to be in writing. You know, it could be simply him with his little dumbass Sharpie that he used on the NOAA map sitting there crossing out the classification things. But it has to be more than just, I declassify it. He will certainly, if this ever got to the point where there were criminal charges envisioned, try and make this argument to the extent it could possibly be applied. But the, 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 the observation about that point is, again, my frustration with some of the articles quoting all these prosecutors about all the difficulty, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. We don't know the facts. I am willing to bet the government does not know the facts. So trying to render some sort of prosecutorial judgment about whether or not this case has merit to prosecute or not, to answer that question, you have to have asked fundamental questions about the fact pattern, which is why you open a case. The FBI doesn't open a case because something they know something has happened. They open a case to ask the questions to figure out if something has happened. So you know, I, 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 I do take, I mean, again, and I know I saw Brandon Van Grack, who is a great attorney, was an amazing um, uh, prosecutor for the government. I knew David Laughlin worked for him for a long time. They both know national security law and particularly law surrounding disclosure of classified information very, very well. But I think to the extent you're focusing on them and what they think the merits of a criminal case are, you're, you're looking at the end state. You're looking at the kind of like what play are we going to run at the goal line? But the reality is the football, because we're at Super Bowl Sunday coming up, the ball is at the 10-yard line on the other side of the field. So you got to run 90 yards before you get to the point where you need to start engaging these attorneys about whether or not there's a criminal viable criminal prosecution there. But again, because I'm talking too long, the answer with regard to Trump is he can declassify things. That stops, by the way, when, he, when he's no longer the president, he doesn't keep that authority that ends like literally I think when the transfer when Joe Biden I, whatever point the transfer of power triggers Trump can no longer declassify things I would expect he would argue very broadly that he did or could but again because of his shitty behavior on Twitter and all his wild statements ironically enough he has sort of a little bit constrained his ability to say oh yeah I just say it and it's done because 
the government during the Trump administration argued to the contrary with regard to that. So how would you square the fact that we still have 90 yards to go before we even think about prosecutorial options? How do you square that with the public who just sees this as a as a obvious crime on its face, et cetera, et cetera, and wants immediate uh, attention? It's it's like I, I think it is a microcosm of everything we're seeing going on with January 6 and Merrick Garland and the question of whether you want I look if you want answers fast go to Congress and the January 6 committee if you want answers via prosecution you're going to have to wait on DOJ and those are going to give you different outcomes because they're focused on different things DOJ is focused on the truth as it relates to violations of law which is different from the January 6 committee which is looking at Everything that happened, whether or not it might be a violation of law, that's a that's a much broader set of things. And so with regard to Trump, frankly, it's going to take time. And that's that's and, and kind of a fine point. This isn't necessarily a case. This isn't the bureau or somebody going and opening a case on Donald Trump any more than it was a case that was opened on Hillary Clinton about the appearance of classified information on the server. It isn't it isn't a case on a person. It. In my mind, if I were, you know, somebody came up to me, I was still in the FBI, and they said, okay, go open a case, figure out what happened. You're opening a case on the the appearance of this classified information in an unauthorized space, and you want to figure out how what the classified is, how it came to be there, who put it there, what their understanding was, and then that whole counterintelligence angle, right? Like, did the Russians, the Chinese, some bad actor domestically get some other unauthorized person to get a hold of it, and what do we do to mitigate it? But it's going to take time. You don't, in the best of cases, with a cooperative subject, that's going to take months and months and months. And this is not the best of circumstances. And Trump is not going to be a cooperative subject. So, you know, folks, but just it will come, but it is going to come slowly. Yeah, very good point. Uh, and and P.S. You can't talk too long. Just so you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> not possible. Hanging on every word. Thank you so much, Pete. Everybody, check out. You can stream it now on Peacock. It's a long-form interview with Nicole Wallace from MSNBC. We get really, really good interview. A lot of really, um, just really poignant information uh, <laughs> from from the last five or six years or so, and even beyond. So you can see that on Peacock now, and also pick up the book Compromised wherever you get your books. I really, really recommend it. Thank you so much, Pete Strzok. Yep. Everybody stick around. We'll be back with the Fantasy Indictment League. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. That's former CIA director Leon Panetta. Admiral Carl Schultz, commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Great to have you here, John Seifer. Errol Suthers. Jefferson Morley. Admiral Mike Rogers. Chris Whipple. Anthony Clayton. John Mendez. You are a legend. That was the former Secretary General of NATO, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Greg Figluzzi, welcome to Spy Talk. Law enforcement agencies are like elementary schools. This is an adapt or fail moment for the intelligence community. I think of these JFK records more as a mosaic. People turn away from the truth and they believe things that are completely rooted in falsehood. And for me, that is really dangerous. Follow the money. The possibility that Al-Qaeda had a stolen nuclear device in Manhattan. Probably some of the skills that make them good intelligence agents also make them fairly efficient as predators. Somebody left active, destructive pipe bombs outside Republican and Democratic Party headquarters, and we don't know who it was. Join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, it is going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! 
And it's been a long time coming, but justice grinds slow. But Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, announced February 7th that Stephen M. Koch was sentenced to one year and one day of imprisonment for corruptly using his position as the head of a federally insured bank to issue millions of dollars in high-risk loans to one Paul Manafort in exchange for personal benefit. Koch's placement on the Donald J. Trump 2016 presidential campaign and assistance from Manafort in trying to obtain a senior position with the incoming presidential administration. That was he wanted to be Secretary of the Army, right? Or maybe Ambassador to the Bahamas or some shit. Now, on July 13, 2021, Koch was found guilty of financial institution bribery and conspiracy to commit financial institution bribery following a three-week trial before U.S. District Judge Lorna Schofield, who also imposed today's sentence. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams says, quote, Stephen Koch abused his position as the CEO of a federally insured bank to try to buy himself prestige and power by trading millions of dollars in high-risk loans for influence with a presidential campaign and consideration for positions at the highest levels of the Defense Department. Today's sentence sends the message that those who corrupt federally regulated financial institutions will be held to account. Those who corrupt federally regulated financial institutions will be held to account. All right, with that, my picks, my draft for the Fantasy Indictment League today include Eric Prince. He's under federal criminal investigation and has been for a while. Rudy and Tonzing out of Southern District of New York. Gates. Engels and L.A. Key out of the Middle District of Florida, the Trump Organization out of the Manhattan DA's office, Sidney Powell out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., Parnas superseding indictments out of, oh, let's call it the Southern District of New York, and Tom Barrick, a plea agreement in the Eastern District of New York, which that's mostly out of sheer hope and optimism. I don't know if he's going to cooperate, but I know he doesn't want to go to prison. All right, that's our show. Thanks again to Pete Strzok. And check out the latest installment of the MSW Book Club on Corruptible by Brian Kloss. That's also out today. I'll be back with Dana tomorrow on The Daily Beans. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. 
We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. SW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.